Hoy hoy, you delightful little ragamuffins. I'm John Miller, and you are listening to Everybody Trades. And if you're like me, and you are the product of public schooling, you've been fed a lot of lines about the greatness and supremacy of the American system of governance. And one of the things I was taught over at good old Southern Boone R1 was that separation of powers in the federal government was a genius concept made by our founders and framers of, quote, checks and balances. Well, my first question when I was thinking about this the other day was, I wonder if they even teach about checks and balances anymore because it sure seems to me like more and more in this day we're moving toward a majority rule type of government, a pure democracy, as opposed to a limited constitutional republic, which is essentially what this country was founded on. It's founded on a limited government as opposed to a pure democracy, which basically puts everything up to a, to a vote. Well, in our, in our constitution, in our public, in our republic, our form of government, in our Bill of Rights, we said that there were certain inalienable rights. In other words, there were things that were so important, natural laws, natural rights, that cannot be up for a vote, that should never be taken away from any one man or woman. And you might be wondering, well, heck, why do we need a system of checks and balances for the government anyway? The government is just where laws are made, right? Heck, I've seen spots for Bluff City Law. I know these damn corporations being all corporation-y, right? See, there's no need to fear the state, correct? Well, clearly that's how a lot of people feel, but also quite clearly that's not how the framers and founders of our Constitution felt. And you see this fear of the government built into our system quite clearly when you repeat the principle that the innocent, that people are innocent until proven guilty. Obviously, that is a check on government power right there. So obviously, the framers, the founders of this country had a healthy fear of government power. And in fact, many of these men who were known as anti-federalists wanted no federal government overseeing the states whatsoever. And at the very least, when a federal government was formed at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, the states all signed on to the agreement with the notion that they could leave the federal government, a.k.a. they could secede from the federal government at any time of their choosing, whenever, in their minds, this agreement was no longer helpful to them. And if you think about it just from the perspective, from a po political power perspective, well, the states were totally independent and would rightly be suspicious of the federal government in terms of the feds seizing power from it. Now, don't get me wrong here. If all powers separated out by the Constitution throughout the three governments, if this separation of powers that is enumerated to the, various, the three branches of, of, of government, if that was absent, and all the powers were just given to, say, the executive branch, for instance, then I have little doubt that the federal government would be even more powerful and abusive than it is today. Therefore, I'm not saying that separation of powers is totally useless. I'm just saying that it's incredibly and wildly overrated. Now, in my humble opinion, I've got to assume that many of the founders and the framers did not count on any of the branches ceding power. 
I think what they figured was, well, if we just enumerate powers to these three branches of government, executive, legislature, judicial, then they'll constantly be vying for power. But what we've seen is, particularly the Congress, has punted on many of its enumerated powers, especially the one to declare war, right? Famously, Congress has yet to officially declare a war since World War II. And not only that, you've got the executive branch grabbing much power from the legislature over the years by creating these large departments like the EPA and the FDA and the Department of Defense, et cetera, et cetera. Well, like the EPA, these, these branches of the executive branch, why they can create law, they can create regulations that end up putting people in jail and levying fines upon them. So this was the type of thing Congress was supposed to make the laws. But here we are. We've got a branch of the executive branch doing it. And then we have the judiciary as well, which was supposedly, as we were told, supposed to interpret the laws, say what it really, the original intent of laws. But what's really happening now is we're seeing a rewriting of laws from the bench by judges, by the, by the judiciary. For example, when Obamacare... The tax, the tax on people, which, which became a tax. See, originally it was a fine. It was always considered a fine. You see, you had to buy health care under the Obamacare law, under the Affordable Health Care Act. You were forced to buy health insurance or pay a fine. Now, many people thought, well, this is unconstitutional. You can't force somebody to buy anything. Well, Justice Roberts never said never agreed with that or disagreed with it. He simply said, no, it's not a fine. The The penalty for not getting health care, it's not a fine, it's a tax. So essentially he rewrote the law from the bench and then called it a tax. Now, whether you're an Obamacare fan or not, the point is here, the legislature, and again, I would I would guess much to the surprise of our dearly departed founders and framers of this country, They've got to be surprised that Congress has punted its powers in some ways. But, of course, in other ways, Congress has just as much power as they've ever had because through the increase in the EPA, the FDA, the FTC, all this different stuff, there's so much money that is pouring through the Treasury now that essentially you're the gatekeepers if you're Congress. So now the power is really just seeing all these lobbyists and being able to divide up the money as you see fit. That's where their real power comes from. So again, if I'm to believe that the separation of powers is this brilliant idea that has arrested the growth and the abuse of state power for all these centuries, then how is it that America is $20 trillion in debt with more than $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities. And we also live in a country where, on average, a person commits at least one crime per day, according to some outlets. And also we're in a situation where 90% of the time your case goes, if you're charged with something, your case doesn't go to trial. No, instead, they're either settled with a plea bargain of some sort, or they just never go to trial whatsoever. And to put an even finer point on this whole thing, 
Here's a list of the following things that were not prevented by the separation of powers. Slavery, Japanese-American internment camps, the Vietnam War, the drug war, various government spying apparatuses, etc., etc. And overseas, as the existence of Guantanamo Bay proves, the federal government does absolutely whatever it wants, whenever it wants, overseas. See, there's this famous cliche in politics that Republicans and Democrats are supposed to abide by, and it's that politics stops at the water's edge. In other words, when it comes to domestic policy and all that stuff, we can argue until the cows come home and have a good, rousing, Democratic-style debate. But when it comes to overseas, when it comes to warfare, well, basically we all just have to get on board and start waving the flag. That's what politics stops at the water's edge means. Well, for as impressive and brilliant as the founders and the framers were in many ways, they were also flawed. They weren't perfect. And one of the ways they screwed up was that, quite honestly, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution should have been expanded to all people on the planet for it to work as well as you would like. Now, some are going to call this, you neocon types, we're going to call this impractical. Well, my, my rebuttal to that, for one, would be that belief, that actually belies the statement found in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. Now, think about this. How does that manifest itself in our domestic laws versus our foreign laws and how law enforcement, a.k.a. the military, how do they comport themselves here versus overseas? Well, yeah, there's a lot of bad people, a lot of bad, scary, murderous people outside of the United States. But you know what? There's quite a few bad, murderous, and scary people inside the United States borders as well. But you know what we don't do? When we suspect that we know, we see like, say that there's a bunch of gangs in one area. Like we have a, a warehouse full of gangsters, whether they're the Crips or the Bloods, or it's Don and Vito Corleone, if it's Vito Corleone and his kids. Either way you want to look at it, we've got some, some gangsters. We've got some private governments, basically. <laughs> some people who believe that they dominated territory and that they get, that gives them the right to call the shots, whether you agree to it or not, right? But basically, here's something that our, here's one way in which our government is restrained. Now, if there's, you know, hey, we feel like, hey, there's some Crips in here. There's some Bloods and some Crips. There's, there's the Corleone family. We don't like them very much. Well, what we don't do, we don't, we don't fly over the Corleone compound and proceed to drop drone bombs on top of the Corleone compound. No, we don't do that, do we? What we do is we charge these people, find evidence, take them in, have a fair trial. Again, this is all in theory, but certainly compared to overseas where we drop bombs first and ask questions later, and then if there are children, various innocent people who are caught up in this bombing, killed, maimed, what have you, well, we call that collateral damage, and one of the most disgusting euphemisms I can possibly think of. You see, people in America, and by people in America, I mean the non-political, the citizens, just the people who happen to live here, going about their lives, they don't seem to question that all that much. 
But I guarantee you, as soon as America started, and by America I mean the people in D.C., the military, people in charge, if they start giving orders to drop bombs in U.S. cities, well, Americans are going to have a different idea, aren't they? And frankly, I'd like to think that there'd be some brave men and women who are controlling those drones who would refuse those particular orders. But I digress. And then let's actually go back really quickly to the original argument of should there be a federal government or not? Well, one thing I hear even nominally liberty-oriented folks talk about who, are, who, who talk a good game about being fearful of big government and wanting to limit the power of government. Well, oddly enough, there is one big government thing that they, like, that they always jump aboard on, and that is the warfare state. Now, again, I like to point out that there's a big difference between how these people see the rights of people inside of the United States and people outside of the United States. But even more interesting, these same people will tell you that the Civil War was a great thing and that they'll, they'll even openly ask, why doesn't America get more credit for the Civil War? Why we went to war with each other and ended the dastardly institution of slavery in America. Now, certainly getting rid of slavery was a worthy goal, but am I an asshole if I ask a very simple question? Was the only way to end slavery, in or was, was it to divide the United States of America in half, go to war against each other, resulting in 600,000 American deaths? Now, 600,000 people in the 1860s was a heck of a lot more than it is today. Now, just person for person, yes, 600,000 is 600,000. My point is, is back then we had about a tenth of the population as we do today, about, th- about 30 million people versus 300 million today. So in other words, that 600,000 was about 2% of the population back then. Pretty incredible, right? So that means that if there would have been 2% of the population, let's say 2% of the population had died in the Iraq War, the War on Terror, all of that stuff, well, that would be 6 million people in 2019. If we lost 2% of our population, that would be 6 million people. That's more people than live in the entire state of Missouri. Just gone. Poof. Like that. Killed. In the name of supposed liberty. Well, again, just for comparison's sake, as of 2016, about 4,400 Americans, American troops, have been killed as part of the Iraq conflict. Again, 4,000 versus 6 million in today's numbers. So, again, you tell me, was this the best possible outcome? Was this the best possible way to end slavery? See, I would argue that it's possible that there is no war without a federal government. If there's, no, if there's no federal government, if there's no union, what is, what is the, the means by which there is a war? How, do, how exactly does that work? Do all of, does South Carolina and Georgia, they all, they all come together for, for what reason exactly? To defend against what? See, to me, it's this idea that we all need to be under one thing was the true problem of the Civil War, this idea of 
Again, tacit agreement, this idea of e pluribus unum. We're all stronger from many one. Together, we're all stronger, right? Well, well, Abraham Lincoln certainly agreed with that idea because when you really go back and parse his words, you don't even need to parse it. It's quite explicit. Lincoln was much more concerned about keeping the union together than he was getting rid of slavery. And even when pressed in the presidential debates, while Lincoln may not have been a fan of slavery per se, when he was really pressed by his opponent during the presidential debates, Lincoln was forced to admit that he did not think that blacks were equal to whites. So to reset, we've got Abraham Lincoln, president of the Union and Mr. Emancipation Proclamation, admitting in a presidential debate that he doesn't think black people are equal to white people. Wow, what a hero for civil rights this guy is, right? So think about it. At this time, what if you're a politically vanquished freed slave? You're a black man in the post-Civil War America. What, what, is your, what are you supposed to do in terms of politics? Am I just supposed to keep ec- exercising my newly found voting rights? This is my so-called choice as a minority of freed slaves? This is completely absurd on its face. There aren't enough of people like me to, in fact, vote our preferences. That's why majority rule is messed up. Just because I'm a minority, whether it's a minority of skin color, a minority of thought, a minority of religion, minority sexual preferences, whatever it might be, that does not give the right of the majority that does not give the majority right to aggress upon me it doesn't and that's really what pure democracy is all about now the problem with this whole thing is is even people like john locke who is a british 15th century philosopher a guy who was even known as the father of liberalism now at that time liberalism essentially meant he was the father of liberty the father of freedom in a philosophical sense But even Locke bought into a notion that remains popular to this day known as tacit agreement. You see, when people talk about a social contract that gives government permission to aggress upon you, the obvious question is, can I see the contract? Where is my signature? Can I see the terms of the contract? What date did I sign it on? Well, obviously, since no actual physical contract or even a verbal yes and a handshake, or a yes into a tape recorder. Since none of that exists, one must rely on tacit agreement. In other words, because you've chosen to live in and not move away from a given geographical location dominated by a certain government, therefore you tacitly agree to whatever actions the government takes against you or other people. Well, Locke, despite the moniker father of liberalism, said tacit agreement was necessary because getting consent from every single person would be difficult, if not practically impossible. Well, I'm sorry, that argument does not hold any water with me whatsoever. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean, number one, that it can't be done or that it shouldn't be done. Can anybody name any other aspect of life where saying no to something? Not giving consent can only be accomplished by uprooting your life, 
possibly selling your home and moving hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from your family and friends and anybody you've ever known. What sort of ridiculous version of consent is that? You see, even in one of the more ridiculous consent scenarios I can think of in fiction, which is a South Park episode that was playing off the movie The Human Centipede. They called it The Human Centipad. <laughs> and it was playing off the idea that there are these long Apple user agreements that we all click accept on just blindly without actually reading any of the agreements. Well, in the episode, Kyle ends up realizing that, oh, I accepted that I'm now going to be turned into the human Sentai pad, and basically I'll be tethered to three other people to make one larger, disgusting creature. So, you know, it's a funny, ridiculous thing, but even in this scenario, you still have to click accept on your Apple agreement, and you are indeed free to decline. Now, even in reality, of course it's ridiculous. You're right, it is silly. All these long, 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 long contracts that virtually none of us read, we just blindly click accept and hope it all works out. I still say that tacit agreement is a far bit more ridiculous than that because you do at least have the option of declining without, again, moving your entire life to another country or another state. And frankly, it's obvious to me that that post-Civil War, members of the federal government must have realized The tacit agreement was as weak of an argument as I do. Because eventually, what did we get? We got the Pledge of Allegiance. And that thing was read aloud in unison every single morning by people in public schools across the country. Now, when I was in kindergarten, I didn't even think about what any of it meant, and I'm sure most kids that age don't. And that makes us perfect little guinea pigs, doesn't it? A bunch of non-thinking children to just monolithically speak back, (laughs) just repeat what we were supposed to say, right? Well, again, just this whole notion belies the idea of tacit agreement. Why do we need a pledge of allegiance if tacit agreement is good enough? It's just this boring thing that kids are supposed to memorize. It just seems so innocuous, right? But but really, that's the genius in terms of propaganda, in terms of, of brainwashing you, if you will, just in terms of not getting people to question it. Because it seems so innocuous. But really, though, again, if you think about it, who even knew as a kindergartner what the word indivisible meant? Especially in a, in a political context. Nobody knew what indivisible meant. Well, again, what, what are they talking about with indivisible? They're saying, hey, no secession. You guys are in the union forever, and if you, want, if you don't like it, if you don't like America, then you can get out. That's the idea of tacit agreement. You got to go. Hey, you got to go. And we're indivisible. Hey, those of you in the South, y'all ain't seceding. It's not going to happen. And by the way, not talked about very often in this secession thing was in 1861. Did you know that New York City wanted to secede as well? In fact, the mayor at the time went to the city council and said, hey, we should secede. We should totally do it. And we'll create this new city called the Free City of Tri-Insula, which encompassed the islands of Manhattan, Long Island, and Staten Island. So that was his idea. So if I believe that states should be able to secede 
from the federal government, does that mean that I believe that cities should be able to secede from states as well? Yeah, you're damn right I do. And I'd take it even further. I'd say that counties or neighborhoods should be able to secede from cities. And tiny little cul-de-sacs should be able to secede even further from that. And yes, if I, the individual, want to secede from my cul-de-sac, well, I should be able to secede from that as well. Because it all comes down to mutual agreement, doesn't it? Now, sure, you can say to DirecTV that I agree for two years to pay you this amount of money. Okay, then you will owe them that amount of money for two years because you've agreed to that. But if you've agreed to them on a month-to-month deal, then as soon as you decide to secede from DirecTV, then that means you should no longer owe them any money the next month, right? We all agree with this from a moral perspective, correct? Once again, it's not about the size of the government, whether it's big, whether it's small, whether it's federal, state, city, local, whatever it is. It all comes back to mutual agreement and property rights. In other words, if we have a contract, then I need to abide by the, by the terms of that contract. And I have my property and you have yours. Now, what does that all mean? It means that we, thou shalt not steal each other's property. Thou shalt not trespass. Thou shalt not kill. All that different stuff. Think about all that encompasses. But what I've just described there, mutual agreement, whether verbal, whether it's in an actual written contract, whether it's a video contract, no matter what form that that takes, that is the fundamental underpinnings of our entire society. It's about people having, being trustworthy, being able to trust each other and trade and that sort of thing. Ultimately, we as a society need to get back to self-regulation as opposed to top-down control of more and more aspects of our lives. It honestly, it all comes back to us. We, the people, we're the ones who really need to regulate ourselves. And if we can't regulate our own behavior, we're finished as a polite society. It doesn't matter what the government does because no matter how powerful the government is, it's always going to be behind culture. You know, there's this, another cliche that politics is upstream from culture. Well, I think that's true for the most part. You know, think about the Civil Rights Act of the 60s. That wasn't going to happen unless, no matter what you think of that particular piece of legislation, that was never going to happen unless society had shifted. The hippies of that age, the baby boomers, the young people of that age decided that the old ways of well, black people are going to have this drinking fountain and they sure can't come to our lunch counter. They were over that. And partially, I think a lot of that had to do with cameras, the proliferation of video technology, that kind of stuff, photography, what have you. Just people actually seeing that stuff instead of it being a sort of hidden, unspoken of, I don't know, frankly, ugliness. I think at a certain point, The boomers just couldn't take it anymore, and we can argue about why that happened or for what reasons and how effective it was, but ultimately I think that societal shift happened way before the legislative shift. So let's understand quite clearly where change really comes from, and it comes from us. It comes from within. It doesn't come from the top. It doesn't come from a bunch of people who 
90% of the time are going to get reelected in Congress. See, they just want to keep their power. They're very safe, very safe people in a lot of ways. They're certainly not going to break up the apple cart on something like an institution like slavery or something like that without a gigantic push from a majority of their people. You see, there is a natural democracy to freedom in the market. We don't need a bunch of elite people putting up a fake artificial version of government democracy that just quite honestly doesn't work nearly as well as the marketplace, the democracy of ideas. And with that, I'm going to get on out of here on this episode of Everybody Trades. Hope you've enjoyed more talk about tacit agreement in the social contract because, quite honestly, while at first glance it may seem innocuous, it may seem esoteric and nerdy even, but ultimately nothing could be more important because if consent is important on individual basis, like, for instance, if consent is the only thing that's important in sex, in sexual relationships, if consent is all that matters, well, frankly, then consent should matter in all aspects of our individual lives. So thank you guys once again for joining me on this episode of Everybody Trade.